This episode of Teeming with Microbes is brought to you by Bigfoot Microbes, number two organics made in partnership with Malibu Compost and down-to-earth all-natural fertilizers. Welcome, everyone, to the Teeming with Microbes podcast, our weekly deep dive into the rich and fertile world of the soil food web and organic gardening. We're breaking down all the science and handing out expert gardening advice while busting those long-held myths about how to help your garden grow. With the man who literally wrote the books on teeming with everything important in your soil, the Lord of the Roots himself, Jeff Lowenfels, and me, Jonathan White, the caffeinated gardener. From flowers to lawns to vegetables, heck, even your mind. Let's grow it all. All right, Jeff, welcome back to another another week, another podcast. Can't wait. The Lord of the Roots. I have a question for you. It's going to set the table for the entire episode. Oh, boy. Do you eat breakfast? I do. What did you have for breakfast today? Uh, today, I had a piece of toast. So that toast gave you the energy, part of the energy you needed to be sitting here with us right now recording this week's podcast. That's correct. And plants need the same stuff, right? They do. They absolutely do. And we've talked about how we're sort of the chefs for these plants, right? We can we can put down the microbial food yeah. that the microbes need to then, in turn, make the stuff available for the plants to eat. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So the big three, NPK. Right. Those are the big three that you see on every microbial food bag, also known as fertilizer. Right. Um Nitrogen might be the most important. Right. And right now, when if you live in a place like where we live in Anchorage, Alaska, starting to warm up, things are starting to grow. Nitrogen is maybe the most important right yeah, now. Yeah, probably everywhere. Nitrogen is the most important. Uh, if if you don't have enough nitrogen, then you don't have the enzymes because the nitrogen is part of the backbone of enzymes. If you don't have nitrogen and don't have enzymes, then you're not having building blocks being made and the plant's not able to grow. It's pretty simple. It's, uh, you know, it's not too difficult to understand why nitrogen is needed. But you can give a plant too much nitrogen, right? You know, you probably can in a chemical system, but in an organic system, it's hard to do. You can create a situation where some of the microbes in the soil are paying attention to what you put into the soil rather than feeding the plant, but it, it evens out eventually. So, yeah, in a chemical situation, you can put too much nitrogen. In a in an organic situation, it's much more difficult to do so. Because a plant's going to take what it needs. Exactly. It's going to leave everything else down there, but it's going to take what it needs when it needs it, because as you always like to say, the plant's in control. Not only is it going to take what it needs, but it can create situations where it can lock up what would poison it so that it doesn't go into the system. So it can change the pH. Changing the pH, if you lower it, for example, uh, it, it, it does things to aluminum and manganese. Uh, things people don't aluminum in my plant, but these things are important. And, and, and if you don't have the right pH, uh, the plant can lock that stuff out of, of the system, which is what it might need to do so it doesn't poison itself. Iron can poison a plant. So all of these things are important, but nitrogen is the key, absolute key, with perhaps the exception of the other two. Right. <laughs> uh, so we have phosphorus, which is really important because ATP, 
which is the energy currency that all life operates off of, ATP, the P is phosphorus. And so if you don't have that, you don't have energy. Well, that's a bad situation. In addition, the phosphorus uh, is the main component or one of the main components in the membranes that surround the plant cells and surround the vacuole, that big bubble in the inside of the plant. And, and if you don't have phosphorus, you don't have these membranes. So it's really, really important for that kind of stuff. And then the third one, potassium, NPK. Why do they have K? But what? Come on. Uh, as if chemistry isn't difficult <laughs> right. enough. You know what I mean? Okay, K, it's got something to do with Greek or Roman. You can always blame it on those guys. Anyhow, the, uh, the, it, doesn't, it doesn't become part of the plant, but it does enable processes to take place. So the building blocks that are put together require potassium as sort of a stimulator. It's like a not even a vitamin. It's just a stimulator to get things going. And so it's it's very, very important. And and the way people are, are supposed to look at all of this stuff is a barrel with these staves, you know, the, the staves of the barrel. And each one is – so there's 18 staves. Each one's a nutrient. And as soon as, as, as one gets below the level that's required, the other ones don't work properly. So you got to have the right balance. And fortunately, over eons and eons, the plants and the microbes have figured out how to develop the right balance. And that's your challenge as a gardener. Don't screw it up. Right. Not so much finding the right balance and looking for the things to put into the soil. It's keeping it, keeping harmony, keeping right. things right. in control, right? Right. And in order to do it again, you have to supply organic material. The problem with chemical fertilizers is a lot of them, even though you can't find it on the label very easily, don't contain, for example, the trace elements. Well, what good is that? You know, so so again, thinking of that barrel situation, you're, you've got a stave that's leaking and the rest of the barrel isn't, isn't effective. So you really, really end up helping yourself by putting these organic materials down, uh, the plant uh, and the microbes work it out and feed themselves. It's just such an easy system. And by the way, early on in the season, even before you begin, it's a great time to get some of these microbes in the soil so that they can start working. So our friend, the bacteria, yeah. they're going to break down organic matter mm -hmm. and they also recycle it, right? right? They But that... That is sort of the chef. They're sort of the little they're, – they're the chef, chefs down there making things available for the plants. Well, unless you want a different kind of food, then the fungi. The fungi, I was going to yeah, say. They so become. that's part B of that, right? right. The, they're the building blocks down there yeah. that get things started. But right. when, a, when a gardener sees and reads something that says, I need that big middle number right. for my roses, right, right. or for my, my flowers because yeah. those big middle numbers are going to make these big, beautiful – that's yeah. a lot of marketing, right? I think it is. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's some scientific evidence that, that if you're using chemicals, that that might help. Uh, but we're not using chemicals, and so we don't need to be thinking about it. We happen to live in a place where we had advice before the current garden columnist came in uh, to use a gigantic middle number, 832.16. 
And we've got more of that middle number in our soils in Anchorage, Alaska. We won't need to put any of that stuff down for the next 250 years because it's there. And what's strange about it is the phosphorus gets locked up chemically very quickly. So if you put it down on the soil, it gets locked up very quickly. If you use a lot of it, then a little bit of it will go into the plant. So that's the chemical system. Under our system, the fungi, for example, have the capability of releasing chemicals or supporting bacteria. Wait a minute. Hmm. So living along the fungal hyphae can be bacteria that take advantage of the relationship to fungi is breaking down stuff, uh, which is a little bit more difficult for the bacteria to get. The fungi break it down into smaller pieces, and the bacteria, so they live right there next to the fungi, and they work together. And those particular bacteria can unlock phosphorus so that the fungi can take it in and bring it into the plant. If you've got a chemical system, that's not going on. It sounds so much easier. Why are we using right. these chemicals? Because someone's making a lot, lot of, money. of money. A lot of money. Yeah. Hey, so I know that we have at least one person that listens to this podcast. Yeah. Because we we've no we we've we've we're getting lots of questions, and we're going to get to these questions later in this episode, right. later in episodes. But we're talking right now about this sort of thing. So Linda wanted me to ask about hydroponic growing. Yeah. Very popular. Right. Can be can be very healthy. Right. But it, it's pretty different, it right, is different than what we're talking about. It you, is different. You, you pretty much have to use synthetics or right. you can use organic food, but it's not the same as yeah. the soil food. Web. Yeah. Well, a couple of things here. First of all, I'm glad you mentioned Linda. If you're sending in a letter, people, we need to have your name, first name, last name. We'd love to know where you're from because we got we have listeners in South Africa, in Ireland. So we need to we need to Kenya. really Kenya, right? We need to know where, and even Anchorage, Alaska. We need to know where where you're sending it in from, and that would that would be very helpful. But hydroponics is the way uh, people tested what the nutrients that were needed were. So they would put a hydroponic plant situation together, and then they would put in everything but the nitrogen and see what would happen. So they were able to find out what the 18 essential nutrients are and all that stuff. The problem is that, first of all, the mycorrhizal fungi need a substrate. And so unless you use something like rock wool with your stuff, you're not necessarily getting the benefits of the mycorrhizal fungi. Now, you might not need it because you've got the nutrients, which are chemical, right up against the, the root so they're, they're able to go in. The problem I see is that you can't do it organically, and the reason you can't do it organically, so you end up having a plant that tastes like the chemicals and has the characteristics of a chemical-grown plant— if you try to do it organically, and some people do, you've got to prevent the buildup of bacterial slime. So you've got bacteria and fungi growing in your, in your hydroponic solution, and that's terrific. But eventually, the bacteria multiply and create this slime protection, this slime layer. You can see it sometimes when you look at a water barrel or something. It's got a little black fuzzy stuff. That's bacterial slime, and the bacteria live in there so that they don't get eaten by protozoa and things like that. And it's got to be cleaned up because it's anaerobic. Our soil food web system is aerobic, and so we want to have oxygen that deprives the bacteria of oxygen. You get a different kind of bacteria, and anaerobic bacteria include 
the bad guys, E. coli, listeria, um, salmonella. So you want to be really, really careful on that. So that's why we don't sterilize our soil either. We right. want to keep it nice and and chock full of all these little critters down there that are yes, doing the work do. for us, right? Yes, we do. So back to the NPK, there's yeah. 18, not three. This is a really simple but also very complex thing we're talking about. Right. Everything's still in the soil. Everything's down there that the microbes need. We're feeding the microbes. Right. They're breaking it down feeding the plants for us. Right. We are feeding the microbes, and if we don't feed the microbes, the plants are not going to do well. Well, I have some exciting news. Yeah. Well, we have some exciting news. We do. We have our first sponsor. Yeah. So now we get to say something really fancy like, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Bigfoot Mycorrhizae is a complete microbial powerhouse that takes all the guesswork out of using beneficial fungi for your grows. It's like a soil food web in a bag packed with beneficial bacteria, kelp, humic acid, biochar, worm castings, and micronutrients. It's going to boost the flavor and size of your veggies, and it's the only mycorrhizae product to earn Jeff's coveted teaming with microbes seal of approval. You can find Bigfoot in Anchorage at Alaska Mill and Feed or nationwide through Amazon or our website, BigfootMyco.com. That's BigfootMyco.com. Hey there, gardeners. Do you really know what's in the compost and soils that you buy? You don't have to second guess with number two organics. Farm-made compost that's 100% finished, topsoil with up to 17% organic matter, and a fantastic premium organic potting soil that has one-third of our compost in it. You can trust number two because it's made in partnership with Malibu Compost. Ask your local retailer to contact us at number2organics.com. Okay, so going back to a couple of our earlier episodes, and one of the big things we'll talk about throughout the life of this podcast is mycorrhizal fungi. Right. And we're getting some questions, ecto versus endo. We're, we're getting a lot of questions about that. Mm -hmm. Still some confusion about sure. which, which is which and which is for what. Right. All right. The way I like to put it is there are seven different kinds of mycorrhizal fungi. Fungi. The two that gardeners are concerned about are the endomycorrhizal, endo meaning inside, and the ecto meaning outside. So obviously, you, you know there's a difference between the two. The vegetables and, and things that we tend to eat, not tend to eat, things that we do eat, they associate with the endomycorrhizal fungi. These fungi are invisible unless you have a microscope. They, they, their fruiting bodies can be seen sometimes with a naked eye, but they're very, very small uh, spores. And the fungi itself goes in between root cells and forms a little structure there where the transfer of exudates and nutrients takes place. The ecto, which tend to be on trees, particularly nut trees, produce fruiting bodies, which you are very familiar with, Mushrooms. Now, not all mushrooms are from ectomycorrhizal fungi, but the ones that are around your trees, those are most probably associated with your tree. They are helping your tree grow. And so here in Anchorage, Alaska, where we have a tremendous number of ectomycorrhizal fungi. <laughs> Evan's going to charge you some money. We have a little <laughs> jar just, here. My hand went right to the wallet. Uh, uh, the ecto form Amanita muscara mushrooms, those, those Alice in Wonderland uh, red and white dotted mushrooms. If you don't have them around your birch trees in Anchorage, Alaska, your trees are not doing well. 
So, so they're very, very important for trees, uh, and you want to make sure you have them. There are some plants that don't have a mycorrhizal fungi relationship, and those are the ones, as I mentioned last week, that your kids don't like to eat, the cabbages, the coals, coal crops, uh, kale. Uh, those are not mycorrhizal. But you're not going to hurt anything no. by using the wrong kind. That's Those are the questions we're getting. Right. Gardeners can be very, you know, very specific and regimented, right. and they want to know, I, I know I do, what, what to use, when to use it. Right. You, you can't really hurt anything no. by using the wrong product. No. And you can't really use too much of it. You can no. pour an entire bag on on cabbage roots, right. and it's not going to kill the cabbage roots. They're just not going to make use of it. Right. Right. And that brings up the other question that we got related to mycorrhizal fungi, and that is, aren't you bringing in things that could take over? Aren't you bringing in something, you know, and people are watching that television show, uh, and they're worried we're going to cause a uh, pandemic of, of fungal-eating monsters that are going to take down the world because we're putting a little mycorrhizal fungi. Let's be honest. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> anyway, they, they, you know, it's sort of like, uh, can I say pee? Yeah, it's sort of like peeing in the ocean. I mean, what you think the whole ocean's going to turn to urine because you're peeing in it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't Not work. Not to mention that way. the fish and the whales and it's everything else. Teeny is little in there. teeny nothing. Uh, so it's called it's called according to Doctor White microphobia, uh, and people who are gardening shouldn't get microphobia. People aren't selling you stuff that's going to spread and, and, and take over. Bacteria are ubiquitous. They're all over the world. Every raindrop, every snowflake has bacteria in it. And so the chances are you're not even going to notice. But however, your plant might. You, you probably can't. You probably can't poison, I'm using air quotes that our sure. listeners can't see. You can't poison your soil with bad microbes, no. the sister band to bad worms right. playing this Friday at the Palladium. Right. It, but if you're nuking your soil with Roundup right. or really highly synthetic fertilizers, right. then the plant can be susceptible to some diseases or some other things that could come in because the soil food web not only feeds the plants but helps protect it. Right. And because you've changed the population dynamics, you may get more of one kind of microbe that they don't necessarily need at that particular given time because it likes whatever you put down. Uh, that's that's why organic material, it's got carbon in it. It's got all the good stuff in it. You put it down, the microbes break it down. If it's not needed, they're not going to touch it. If they don't want it, they're not going to touch it. But they'll help that plant because they need the exudates. Yeah. This is perfect. It'll lead us into a note. We're going to get to a bunch of questions back to back later. Yeah. But this is another really good question that came in from Michelle Kaysan about water. So plants need water. Mm -hmm. Humans need water. Mm -hmm. If we drink bad water, we can get things like Giardia or um, all kinds of bad diseases, right? Mm -hmm. Can you use bad water on plants and can it affect the microbial makeup of the soil that you're watering? You can. Let's take the, the use of tap water. Tap water contains chlorine and chloramine. And you can definitely take out some of the bacteria in the soil food web by using them. Now, the chlorine evaporates, and so you, it, it goes away. And if you're using an organic system, you, you complex up the other 
disinfectants that are put into water and they, they become tied up into little some of the particles of organic material, which enables the other material to be, be available to the soil food web. So the organic system actually takes care of it, whereas when you're using a chemical system, the chloramines do not go away unless they hit some kind of organic stuff. So you're likely to have more bad water problems with chemicals than you are with organics. So a good practice I've been doing for years and years is fill up. I have a 50-gallon drum. Mm -hmm. I actually have several around my uh, around my yard. Right. If you fill that up with city water right. and just let it sit for right. a while, right. most of that chlorine is going to dissipate. All of it. All of it will go away. Yeah. I'm on a well in yeah. my house. Right. I have a lot of ferrous metals in my water, and right. the water that comes into my greenhouse in the yard isn't filtered. Right. Same deal. At the end of the summer, I'll have a sludge at the bottom of that. Right. That makes you think of what we were drinking, right? Yeah. But um, so, so you don't have to filter your water and clean it. You just have to give it. If if you're worried about chlorine, just give it a little bit of a air, a little bit of air, right? right. Exposure to air, 24 hours, and it'll all be gone. Now, what I would do is I would throw some leaves or even some compost into that barrel, because then you're complexing up. You don't have them. Because you've got well water. But but if you were using well uh, regular commercial water, you would have the chloramines there. So you can complex it up by adding leaves to the water. Chlorine evaporates. The other stuff gets tied up. And you know what else people use? And you could probably do it in your barrel. Tang. Hmm. <laughs> tang? Believe it or not, tang. <laughs> you yeah, are a wealth of retro. I know. Last week it was Groucho Marx yeah. and a duck. And now it's Tang. Okay, so, so right back to the late 70s. Okay, right, and, the, exactly. and the way, yeah, really into space and everything. Uh, and the way to know that, I have an interesting space story. We can tie it into the 70s, but is to look up fish tanks. Fish tanks. Oh, I've heard when people this put fish into yeah. their, their tap water, that's one of the things they worry about. And so Tang was. Not developed for fish tanks, but all right for you younger listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Tang is the Kool Aid of our childhood. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Jeff, we're going to take another break. When we come back, we have rules from the back of your book. We've got your column and some reader questions. To okay, take us out. Down to Earth has been supplying organic fertilizers and soil amendments since 1977. Featuring a wide variety of blends and single-ingredient options, Down to Earth is dedicated to providing gardeners and yardeners with products containing the highest quality ingredients, including marine proteins, natural minerals, and biological soil additives. They offer premium organic blends, including Acid Mix, All Purpose, My Favorite BioLive, and a Citrus Mix as well as the most diverse selection of single-ingredient inputs, including fishbone meal, oyster shell, and neem seed meal. With a full range of OMRI-listed and organic-approved products, Down to Earth has been a partner of organic growers, backyard gardeners and yardeners, and discerning cultivators for more than 40 years. You can find Down to Earth all-natural fertilizers in independent garden centers, hardware stores, and upscale grocery stores. Ask your favorite retailer for Down to Earth products by name and look for that compostable box. Man, I love that down to earth. Right on down to the packaging, which is sustainable. I mean, yeah. like, you know, it's not plastic. I've been using BioLive since I can remember it. We owe them a thanks because when Anchorage began to go organic— there were very few organic materials you could buy. And all of a sudden, 
the big places in town that were carrying good organic material had rows and rows of down-to-earth products, and they got everything. They have everything you need. You were just talking about putting compost in water. Right. Compost right now might be the most important tool a gardener has in the spring, right? We want to get that soil going. Right. So in the back of your first book, Teeming with Microbes, right. with Wayne Lewis, mm -hmm. there's a list of rules. Mm -hmm. It's been edited because your editor didn't like that one of the rules was don't loan this book to anyone. Right. Go buy the book, Teeming with Microbes. So one of the rules there, number four, is compost can be used to inoculate beneficial microbes and life into soils around your yard and introduce, maintain, or alter the soil food web in right. a particular area. Whew, we could do a whole show on that. Back to what we were talking about, yeah. the, the compost is sort of that protective layer that allows everything beneath it to, to thrive. Right. The, the microbes in the compost, the fertilizer spreaders and the fertilizer bags move down into the soil and they're available there to do their thing. Uh, and I would I would change that rule just a little bit now that I've written teeming with bacteria and have have had the exposure to the bacterial side a little bit a little bit different. And that is there are different kinds of compost. Well, we know there's different kinds of compost. You can make designer compost. You can make compost that's more fungal uh, by putting more brown material in it, and you can make it more bacterial by putting more green material in it. But there's a difference between thermal compost, which is what most people make. You know, you throw the stuff into the big pile. You, pile's got to be— Get super hot. Yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. The other kind is vermicompost made by worms. And it turns out there's a difference between the two. So it's worth experimenting with various plants with the two kinds of compost if you can. If you had a choice between using one versus the other, I'd go with the vermicompost any day. And the reason I would go with the vermicompost is because it's got a concentration of these nutrients, the NPK and some of the others, as a result of the way it's made. And it's, a, it's really kind of a cool thing, and it ties into that rule. Hmm. So here's what happens. The worm takes the leaf and ingests it. And it doesn't care about any of the organic material in the leaf whatsoever. The only thing it cares about are some of the microbes on the leaf. And so it goes into the worm without getting too technical. The worm tears it up and crushes it up into little just pulverizes the heck out of it and then starts to squeeze it as it moves down the worm tube, so to speak. Uh, so it's in the worm intestine or whatever you call it, and it's squeezing and squeezing, and liquid comes out. And that liquid contains the bacteria, and, the, and so it eats that, sucks that stuff up. That's what it's living off of. But it continues to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. And every time it squeezes, it tightens and concentrates what's, what's there. And so those little pellets that come out the back end are these little pellets of squeezed, <laughs> squoezed, squished uh, uh, nutrients. It's just a little packet, and the microbes love it. And it's got more nitrogen, more phosphorus, more everything in it than the leaf itself had when it went into the worm. So if you took the first little crunched up stuff that the worm was using, it'd have a little bit of nitrogen. But by the time it comes out the other end, it's got a lot, a lot of more. stuff in it. <clears throat> and Look. different kinds of bacteria uh, that some plants like better than the thermal kind. 
Nature is gross, folks. That's really what it comes down to. I, I don't Nature think is disgusting. No, you think that's gross? <laughs> no, I'm kind of just, just thinking about the sounds and yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. You want to do some questions? Yeah. All right. We mentioned it, I think, in the last podcast, and both were really impressed with how many questions we got. Uh oh. So the email is. We didn't do something right. What's the email? The email is teamingwithmicrobes at me. Dot com. And right. we need your name right. and your... We didn't do a very good job of laying out the rules last we time, but we're I'm grateful. I, yeah. I'm really excited we're getting the question. So yeah. I think we'll be a trend going forward is me butchering people's names. So if you want to put in a phonetic spelling <laughs> of your name, but we'd love to know where you're listening from and, and your favorite thing to grow, and we'll give you a little shout out. So this question's from Alea Brinkman. Alea is in Fairbanks, wants to know, you know, we talked about soybean meal mm. being a great food amendment or food for all those microbes. And Alea wants to know if pea meal will also work. Um, they can get field peas locally, so thought they'd ask. Wow. They're going to make their own pea meal. That's P-E-A. Right. Not P-E-E. -E. Oh, oh. Pea meal. Okay, now I got it. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, I'm pretty sure it's got... Good nutrients in it, just like the soybeans do. I mean, it's related, uh, peas and soybeans. And so I would definitely give it a good try. It, it, you know, it's organic material. You know that it's going to feed some of the microbes. You know that it feeds microbes around pea plants. So, it, you know, it doesn't kill anything. So, of course, it's, it's well worth a try, particularly if it's local. We want to be as sustainable as possible when we garden. So, first of all, we want to use things that are on our property. Uh, then we want to start using stuff that's in the local area. And if they can get enough peas to make a meal out of it, huh, I'd like to see it. I would love a picture of that, actually. I would like a picture of the... P-meal. It's P-E-A, please. Right. That's the kind of picture we want, right. not, a, exactly. not the other oh, please. kind of P. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Children here. <laughs> Some more jokes. <laughs> All right. So the next question is from Cecilia Fu. And again, I'm pretty sure these, I'm reading these names off the email. So if your email is like Gardner Jeff, but your real name's Bob or something, let us know your name so we can give you uh, the proper credit. Um, Cecilia's a new gardener, and I think it would appear to me that that's where a lot of the, the questions are going to come from, from folks that want to do it right. They're transitioning either from traditional gardening or, or, or synthetic gardening to this style, your style, our style of organic gardening. And one of the questions Cecilia asks is about getting started and digging. But that's oh. one of our rules, right? right. We don't want to disturb the soil. We don't want to disturb the soil. We went through this a couple of weeks ago about Jethro Tull being the guy that invented rototilling because he thought soil ate. <laughs> Still but one of my favorite conversations. I've been listening. I, the earwig song has just been going for ever it's since. Aqualung was his favorite song. No, I Famous love song. it too. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. Um, if you dig, you are disturbing the soil food web system. You're displacing things that were supposed to be where they were, and you're breaking up the fungal network that, that helps create the soil structure. Digging is bad. So what do you do? Let's assume, let's, let's start with the process that you have a lawn you want to turn into a garden. Let's start there. Uh, what do you do? Do you rototill that? 
Yeah, you could maybe rototill that, but you only need to do it once. Of course, if you rototill a lawn with, uh, with uh, a roto, you know, you're going to end up getting a lot of grass roots in your system. So a better way would be to just simply kill it by putting 10 sheets of newspaper over it, uh, maybe putting some soil on top of that newspaper and letting it die back, et cetera, et cetera. Once the garden is there, if it's hard pan, in the fall, you can put in, are you ready for this? You can put in a crop like radishes or uh, what are the big oval turnips. Beets. Beet, well, turnips would be the better. Uh, and it'll, it'll grow for a little bit in the fall and a little bit in the spring, and it'll break up that soil and make it looser. Or you just simply drill a hole by using a tulip planter or a, literally a hand drill and put the seed or the plant in that little area. The roots will grow underground throughout the soil. They'll take advantage of whatever's in the soil, and and the soil food web will help it along because it's all in the right place. If you've got a rota plant, you just take a two-by-four or a dowel or a broomstick or your trowel, and you run it down uh, the row, you make a little furrow, and you plant in it. You don't need to destroy the entire area. But the the one word I think we would both use this time of year is yeah. patience. Right. And if you're trying to uh, embrace a lot of these organic um, principles that we talk about, there's no better time than the present to start. Get right. some compost, lay it down on the area that you're planting, you know, use soy, soybean meal or molasses or things yeah. or kelp. Yes. Get that in there and get that get that food yeah. web fired up. Yeah, and you don't have to you don't have to mix it in with a rototiller. You put it on the surface, the microbial life will bring it in. Uh, if you're planting in a hole, you can put a little bit at the bottom of the hole if you want. You can backfill uh, with it, but you don't have to do anything other than put it down. It's easy. And, and maybe another good thing to do this mm -hmm. time of year is to test your soil. There's all kinds of tools out there to figure right. out. Right. You may have really organic, rich soil and not even know it. Right. So there's two kinds of tests that you need to apply, maybe three. The first would be an NPK test. That's the old-fashioned kind of test. You take a sample, a couple of samples. You go look on the Internet about how, how to take the samples, uh, and you, you send them in or you take them to a soil testing lab. Here in the Anchorage area, we don't have one, so we, we tend to send them to uh, different labs. I mentioned them in my columns. But you send it into the lab. You tell them that you're either organic or chemical so that they can give you recommendations that are based upon your system. Now, what I would do if you're listening to this podcast is say, I'm organic or I'm going organic. And then they'll give you your recommendations of how much you need, NPK, et cetera, et cetera. It's a really easy thing to do. It might cost you 20, 25 bucks. I don't know, but it's worth doing once every maybe four years or so, just so you can see how your soils uh, exist, what the composition is, et cetera. The second test is something called the microbiometer test, and it's a relatively new test. Uh, I, I always have to mention that I'm associated with the company. I advise the company, and the reason I do so is because it's the first test that's enabled me to tell whether what I'm doing in the garden is teeming with microbes or whether it's destroying microbes or whether it's doing nothing. 
to the microbes. And it's a very interesting test. It was developed by a wonderful lady uh, who, who was in the medical field and developed some medical filters so that you could test blood. She figured out a way that you could use your cell phone in a little filter on a card, which comes in a kit that to read a drop of solution that you put on the card. And it tells you whether you have a good microbiomass or a bad microbiomass. Now, what's microbiomass? It's the mass, the numbers of microbes in your soil. Mostly dead, probably, but it gives you the numbers of what's in your soil, and it equates to NPK. If you've got a high microbiomass, you've got a lot of nitrogen because you've got it held in the bodies of those little microbes. Same with the PNK. If you have a low NPK, then you know you need help. So you take a test at the beginning of the season. You apply your compost. You then take a test three or four weeks later, and you see whether you get a higher microbiometer reading. And you can find the microbiometer at www.microbiometer.com. And it's, it's really a cool instrument. Now, the third way would be to do a soil. Uh, incidentally, the microbiometer will tell you a fungal bacteria ratio. It'll give you your pH. A third way is to do literally a soil food web test. Uh, they use the microbiometer, uh, but they'll also do a, a physical observation and count in a grid the fungi and the bacteria, and they will even tell you whether you've got good endomycorrhizal fungi uh, in your system. So, so that's a third test that you can use. But it's important to test why, because information is power. If you know what the numbers are, then you can be informed enough to take action to either sustain what you're doing, to improve what you're doing, or to start all over again. I've got one of those biometer tests. That's yeah. what I did the last couple of weekends, mm -hmm. testing all the soil in my greenhouse pots. Easy. A little hard to do right now with the yeah. stuff being frozen outside, but <laughs> I, I'm with you. It's, it's yeah. a cool, cool device. Yeah. And you talk about a lot of this in your column this week that's coming out on Thursday and Friday in the Daily News. Yeah, that and, and of course, the squirrel's ear-sized leaves, which are a phenological way of telling that we're going to not have any more frosts, which is good. So when the, in Anchorage or in Alaska, when the birch leaves become the size of a squirrel's ear, then you can plant outside, even though its soils are too cold. Uh, you could you could plant outside without worrying about a frost. All right, and that that's next week because it's happening. We're yeah. starting a garden. It is, and we're getting we're, we're getting. We had a terrible winter here in Anchorage. I don't know about other people. Well, California they had a terrible. And what happens here is that the trees begin to get a little bit red hue, and that indicates that the buds are, are, are finally beginning to open up a little teeny bit. We're going to get allergies pretty soon, so watch out. Uh, and around the world, you can use events like the birch leaves becoming the size of a squirrel's ear as a way of telling us that this is ready planting time. Uh, you've got your own wherever you live. And it's kind of fun to keep track of that stuff. I'd love to hear from other people, you know, sort of like when the corn reaches uh, knee high uh, by X date, then you know you're going to be able to have early peas or something like that. Let us know. We, we, we want to know. So it's teamingwithmicrobes at me.com. And Jonathan and I love to hear from you.
And we'll take some more questions next week. Yeah. Until then, the caffeinated gardener, the Lord of the Roots, get out there and get gardening. Hey, thanks for listening to this edition of Teeming with Microbes. Make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing this gardening season. Jeff and I wrote this episode with additional production and editing by Evan Phillips of Podpeak. You can find him at podpeak.com. Our music is also by Evan Phillips. Thanks, as always, to the Anchorage Daily News for hosting our show. And don't forget to catch Jeff's weekly gardening column in each Friday's edition. We'll be back next week with another edition of Teeming with Microbes. Until then, get out there, get your hands dirty, and get growing. As always, thanks for listening to Jeff and I on this podcast. We're brought to you by Bigfoot Microbes. Number two organics made in partnership with Malibu Compost and down-to-earth all-natural fertilizers.